Previously, I spoke to you about the covenant of our salvation, uh, how that salvation is a covenant. I compared it to a marriage covenant. What is a, what is a marriage? Well, a marriage is a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship is a, a, legal, uh, a legal instrument that binds two people together for life. Our salvation is also a, um, a covenant relationship, and um, so that's what I want to talk with you about today. How many of you are ready to learn? All right. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. So that's where we're going to go. I want, to, I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 28. Um, there is a great uh, story there of, of Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the faith, and I'm going to read that to you, and I'm going to talk to you about our salvation, and I believe it'll be a strength and a blessing to you here today. Are you ready? So, you know, we all got saved at different places and different times, and maybe it looked a little different for everyone. I don't know. Uh, it's always wonderful when a human being gets saved and gives their heart to the Lord. It's always a supernatural, unforgettable experience, but it can happen a little different with everybody. At the center of our salvation is usually what we refer to as a sinner's prayer, a prayer that officially um, inducts us into the body of Christ and into a salvation relationship with God. At the center of that prayer is a promise we make to God. It is a vow we make. It could go something like this. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We humbly repent of our sins. We ask you to come into our heart and be the Lord of our lives. We promise to follow you and be your children from this day forward. It's that kind of a simple prayer that is built around a promise that we make to God to be His children for the rest of our lives that salvation is based. It's a covenant that we are, have between us and God that is a legal instrument called salvation. Um, you know, when I have performed a number of weddings through the years, um, I use various collections of vows, and sometimes brides and grooms write their own vows, and um, so I have a number of those that we might use in any given time. Uh, they all kind of contain the same thing, and uh, it's a commitment, a commitment through good times and bad, with the expected and the unexpected. It's a vow that you make, and that vow is the center of that marriage ceremony, and uh, so the vow that we make to God when we get saved is the center of of our salvation, and uh, that's the essence of um, what I, the foundation of what I want to teach uh, this morning. Now, we're going to go back to the Old Testament, talk about Jacob again, and uh, when I spoke to you about this previously, I talked to you about the promises God made to Jacob, and today I want to talk to you about the promises Jacob made to God, but uh, we'll read it through and get the story back in our mind. Now, remember that Jacob has come of age. He has left his father Isaac's home, and he's going into a far land to find a wife and to build a life. And um, it's at that point, as he begins his journey, that he has an encounter with God that changes the rest of his life. We have a good account in the Bible of what actually happened. 
And what it does is paint a picture of all of our salvation. So let's look at it. Verse 10. Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stopped there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from earth to heaven, and he saw the angels of God coming up and down the stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised. Can you say amen? And so this was God's promise to Jacob, and I believe it's God's promise to us today because salvation uh, never really changes. Here are the seven promises. I'm going to go through them quickly. First of all, he said, I am the Lord. He's introducing himself because he wants a personal relationship. So the first promise is that God would be personally related to us individually. Number two, he said, I'm giving you this land. He's saying, I want you to be a part of my big plan I'm giving you a place to belong, and in that place, I will give you provision. Thirdly, he said, I am with you. I am with you. That's his presence. A covenant promise is the constant presence of God in your lives. Then he said, I will bring you back. That's the providence of God. The providence of God allows for all of us to have our own free will and to make all kind of choices for ourselves. It also allows for other people around us to make choices that directly impact our lives. But the providence of God takes all that into account and said, when all that happens, whatever choices you make and everybody around you make, I'm going to bring you back to this place. That's the providence of God. So we approach our lives like this. I'm going to make the best decisions I make, and I realize that sometimes I might make them wrong. And other people around me are going to make decisions. And sometimes they'll be right and sometimes they'll be wrong. But at the end of the day, God's will will be done and he will bring me back to the place where he wants me to be. That's the providence of God. He went on to say, I will not leave you. That's God's constant faithfulness. His constant faithfulness. He will not leave you. Well, pastor, what if? It doesn't matter what you, your what if is. God said, I will never leave you. I will be constantly faithful. The seventh promise was, he said, I will fulfill my promises. And that simply meant to Jacob and to me and you that God would finish the work that he starts in us. That when it's all said and done, he will fulfill the promise and he'll bring it back full circle and fulfill the promise and the plan that God has for us. Those are the seven promises I claim for myself and I pray that you would do the same thing. Claim those seven promises for your life today. Can you say amen? amen? So Jacob awakens from his sleep. We're about to see the impact that this dream had on his life. Genesis 28, 16. 
Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway of heaven. The next morning, Jacob got up early. He took the stone he had rested his head against. He set it upright as a memorial. Then he poured olive oil over it. He named that place Bethel, which means house of God, although it was previously called Luz. I want to talk to you a little bit about Bethel. It's a word that means house of God. You see, Jacob had such an encounter while his head lay on this particular rock that he designated it as a house of God and it would become a place that he would return to throughout his life for worship. He literally built a church out of the ground, the spot of ground on which he had encountered God in such a powerful and life-changing way. When you study Bethel, it's one of the geographic locations most often mentioned from Genesis to the Revelation. We see Abraham had important events that took place in that geography. We see where Isaac had important things happen in his life in that same little circle of geography. It's about 11 or 12 miles north of the ancient city of Jerusalem. It was an intersection for centuries of commerce between the Mediterranean Sea and the interior of the continent. Um, it was basically a small place, but it was a crossroads. It was a, a route of travel. And so it's because of that that uh, that's where Jacob lay down and had this huge encounter with God where he saw a, 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 a ladder, a, a a stairway, and the angels are going back and forth from heaven to earth, and, and God is standing at the top of the, the stairway. I believe there are, there are places on this planet that are chosen by God to be ports of entry and exit, that there are spiritual openings over certain pieces of geography, and that's where God is most likely to be experienced. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take it a bit further and say that I believe this exact piece of property that you and I are, are on today is one of those portholes where God frequently shows up and speaks and interacts with His people. You know, there's a lot of good, a lot of good dirt, and you can have church on any piece of it you want. It all belongs to God. But God chooses places to meet His people and to have divine encounters on a regular basis. It's called holy ground, the house of the Lord. And Jacob found his peace. And as you continue to study his very long life, you found out that he goes back to Bethel over and over again and has each time an encounter with God when God spoke to him and gave him direction for his life. It was Bethel. It was his house of God. It was a sacred place. Ultimately, he would go there, he would build an altar, and he pitched his tent. He was a nomadic person. If you know anything about nomadic people, they live in tents. 
They usually herd some kind of livestock, probably goats and sheep, and they travel to greener pastures, and they never live in one place too long because their animals have to travel to have fresh grazing. And so they travel in a tent. But Bethel became his center point. Bethel became the place that he built around. And all of his travels and all of his experiences life were coming and going from Bethel because that's where he built an altar and he pitched a tent. In essence, Jacob uh, built a church at Bethel. The rock that he had laid his head on, he stood up somehow. I don't know how large of a rock it was. We tend to believe it would have been a, 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 a much of a larger rock, a rock that he could leaned up against and provided protection from from his enemies from behind, and he stood that rock up on its end, and he said, this is the house of God, and I'm going to come back here and worship when God brings me back to this land. So Bethel means house of God, but remember, it was just a rock. It was just a rock, but indeed, it was the house of God. You know, God takes geography, and he takes buildings that are just rocks, just concrete, with steel and, and two-befores and, and, and drywall and carpet, and, and he makes it a house of God. He makes it special real estate. Not just his church, but all the churches that God raises up in a region. God visits his people there on a regular basis. He designates that, this is my house, and this is the place where I will meet my people. So many thousands of years ago, Jacob recognized that principle, and when having had that encounter, he built a church on the spot. It's the presence of God and the voice of God that turns a rock into a sanctuary. Not this particular building, but the building in front that is the original, when we purchased it in 2003, was, um, was a nightclub. There were a number of nightclubs and restaurants housed in the front portion of this building. But when God gave us the word to buy this place, that this was the place God had chosen and gave us the money and the means to do so, it became a house of God. And what was a rock became a sanctuary and a place where God would meet with us week after week after week, year after year. God turned a rock into a sanctuary, a tabernacle. You know, um, it's a meeting place. When, when you have a house of God, it's a meeting place. And if you study the Old Testament from the New King James and others, it talked about the tabernacle of meeting. And that was the official name that you see repeated in your New King James and your third and fourth edition of the King James Version. It was a, a place of meeting, a tabernacle of meeting. And the picture was, we're going to the house of God to have a meeting with God. It's a place where we can go there and encounter God and receive from God and worship God and give to God and receive what we need in life. It's a meeting place. So this church is a meeting place. We come here to meet with God. God speaks to us collectively, and He speaks to us individually. It's my deep conviction that church is entirely a supernatural experience. It's amazing how that me or Pastor Renee or Pastor Brandon or others can come and stand and, and open the Bible and, and begin a teaching. And each one of you hear the exact same words 
but the message changes for you individually. Somehow God takes the same words we all speak and that you all hear and he somehow conforms those words and reshapes them and applies them to what we need in our lives. And one hears this and one hears that and one is affected by this and another is affected by that. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit that is speaking to us uniquely and individually. One of the ways you know which church you are to be a part of is that you continually and on a regular basis feel like God is communicating a message to you while you're there. The, re, the way you, the Bible teaches that the sheep know the shepherd's voice, that there is something about the voice that connects with the heart and words that are spoken seem to stir and change and direct and guide and understanding opens up. There's supernatural application that takes place person by person by person. I believe all that is supernatural. I really do. Uh, no one could possibly say that many messages to that many people without the Holy Spirit. He speaks to us collectively. He speaks to us as a body, as a church, as a covenant family. And then He speaks to us individually. So we come to the house of God because we want to hear God's voice and we want to experience His presence. And that's the essence of what church is all about. Now there's many facets and, and parts and pieces of church and they're all important but that the center of why there is a church and why we come to the house of God is because we want to meet with God and we want to encounter God's presence and we want to hear His voice. Can you give me a great big amen? amen. We need powerful church. I'm repeating that in, uh, on purpose in the last few months. We need powerful church. You know, um, we do our best to create a friendly environment comfortable, safe environment, an environment where everyone feels welcome and honored and appreciated and valued. And we try to do things in such a way and package what we do in a way that is easy for you to receive and to be blessed. We've got great facilities and great things going on for our children because we know how important that is. But the truth is, it takes more than just a comfortable environment to encounter God. We need powerful church. We hunger for the presence of God here that changes hearts, changes lives, that things happen supernaturally in individuals. My heart's cry is for powerful church. Powerful church. Beyond what you and I as human beings can do. All the polishing and brushing and attempting to make everything just as good as it can be. All of that falls short of powerful church. Only the Holy Spirit can do powerful church where people's hearts and lives are truly changed. How many of you want powerful church? Amen. Jacob had a Bethel experience, and I need Bethel experiences in my life. I need encounters with God. I need experiences in the Holy Spirit. I need to have interaction with God and his family in a way that changes my life. I need a Bethel experience. And you know what? There are so many people that I interact with that they need a Bethel experience too. Do you know someone in your family or circle of friends that needs a Bethel kind of experience? Let me see your hand. A Bethel kind of experience. I want to encourage you to talk to those people 
and encourage them to come to the house of God. Now, you and I know you can encounter God anywhere, anytime, in any kind of setting, right? God's everywhere. He loves everybody, and you never know when He's going to show up at an odd place. But you also have to understand that the house of God is the designated place. He said, come and meet me. Come and meet me. I'll be there. I'll speak with you, but you got to come to the house of God. There's a process there that God values. There's a principle there that he put in the earth. I'm going to create a meeting place, and every week you've got to make the decision, am I going to go meet with God or not? Am I going to go to the house of God, and am I going to go worship God or not? And so we invite people to come for them to have a Bethel experience. We promise to be nice and kind and loving and honoring and do everything we can to make it easy and certainly not create any roadblocks if we can possibly help it. But at the end of the day, everybody needs a Bethel experience. If you drop back in the history of your life, somewhere along the way you had a Bethel experience. Maybe like Jacob, you had many Bethel experiences and the, and the, and the result of that was the man or the woman of God that you are today. So invite your friends. Jesus used the word compel. Compel them to come. Persuade them to come. Convince them to come. You know, when people are not living for Christ, they often don't have any motivation to come to the house of God. They don't know what awaits them. They don't know what good things are there. Some of you may recall before you gave your heart to the Lord, you weren't thinking about going to church, and if someone invited you, you're like, why would I want to do that? We have to compel them to come. We have to convince them to come. And it's up to us to, to invite people in such a way and share our testimony with them that they want to come and they have an idea that God has something good for them waiting in the house of God. So I want to encourage you to invite your friends and persuade them to come by using your own personal experiences. So Jacob wakes up. He designates his place as a house of God. He literally built a church that he would attend the rest of his life. And he makes a vow to God. I already read to you the seven vows that God made to Jacob and how that applies to us. I want to talk to you about the vows Jacob made to God because it isn't enough for God to make vows to us. We have to make a vow to God. We have to make a commitment. Genesis 28, verse 20. Then Jacob made this vow. If God will indeed be with me and protect me in this journey, if he will provide, with me, provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then he said, this is his vow, the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar I will set up will become a place of worshiping God. And then finally he said, I will present to God a tenth of everything that he gives me. So he makes three profound promises. And when an individual gets saved, regardless of what the sinner prayer actually says, there are three promises rolled into it that we live out the rest of our lives. Three basic elements of our salvation, our covenant. First of all, he said, I will serve and worship God. He committed himself to El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty, unquestionably. Uh, there were other options. There were other so-called gods. 
but he said, this is going to be my God and I'm going to be a worshiper of God all my life. When we give our hearts to the Lord, the most important thing is that we are committing our lives to be worshipers and followers of Jesus the rest of our lives. That's the, the, the foundation everything else is built on, that I'm going to be a follower and I'm going to be a worshiper of Jesus Christ. The second thing he said is, I will commit to this place of worship. I will practice worship. I will come back to this place. This will be the center ground. This will be the, the epicenter of my whole life. And so over and over again, he's going back and forth, back and forth, because this was the house of God. And he made a commitment that wherever I go and whatever God takes me, I'm going to be coming back to this place because this is the house where I heard God's voice and he changed my life. And so he went on to say, I will commit to this place of worship. And Jacob would again return there later and build an altar and pitch his tent and his life would revolve around uh, that place. There is a principle of weekly worship that is so important to every Christian. Um, the concept that on a regular basis, basis there would be a rhythm of worship. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant with the children of Israel uh, really developed that concept, but it started long before there was a nation of Israel and a law of Moses. Uh, these things I'm preaching to you today, they predate Moses. They predate the Old Covenant. They predate the law of Moses. This is long before there ever was a Moses. There ever was a crossing of the Red Sea and the, and the writing of the law on the tablets. Everything I'm teaching today predates that. So what, what I'm teaching are principles that, are, are, that span all dispensations of time. And so... Um, There's a principle of weekly worship. God set it up in Israel during the times of Moses that they would not only worship on a weekly basis, the Sabbath or, Sunday, or Saturday, as we would call it, but then there would be other seasons, other holidays through the year that every year they would observe. They would go to the house of God and observe certain things. And so not only did they have a weekly form of worship, their whole calendar year was laid out in a rhythm so they would be back and forth to the house of God for special events. You probably already know that the root word of holiday is holy day. A holiday was a holy day set aside for unique forms of worship. And so God creates a rhythm for us and I want to encourage you to live your life with the principle of weekly worship. Build your life and your activities and your schedule around the house of God. Be faithful because it's your Bethel. It's your place where you go to meet God, where you encounter God, where you get encouragement, insight, understanding, and a fresh application of God's Word for wherever you are. You know... Um, the Bible teaches that man cannot live by bread alone. In other words, this human body cannot exist. 
This person cannot exist strictly by eating the good food on a regular basis. But he said, man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So just like I eat on a regular basis, I eat on a very regular basis, I eat on a very timely basis, it's a very big important thing to me, it's just as important that I feed my spirit. Because just like my natural body needs good food, my spirit man needs good food. So this all builds on the concept of a weekly pattern of worship, a weekly commitment to worship. Be faithful to the house of God. Be faithful and God will bless you and continually strengthen you. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25, Paul, who I believe is the author of the book of Hebrews, made this statement, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do. But encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Uh, so he said, don't forsake meeting together, getting together as the body of Christ, getting together and having church. Don't forsake this. And I realized that in the course of my life and my generation, that Americans are attending church less today than they were just a decade or two ago. I realize the trend is away from faithful church attendance. I know that to be a fact. And so it's no wonder that God put in the New Testament this warning for the children of God. It's no wonder that he put this verse here for us in this 21st century to warn us that there would be times when entire cultures would pull away from weekly worship and consistent meeting together to worship God. So all I can say is don't go the way of the world. Don't go the way the culture's going, but be faithful to the house of God and encourage one another to do the same. Encourage one another. You know, uh, sometimes um, you can be betwixt and between, as we used to say, whether you might go or you might not go. But an encouraging voice, an encouraging friend, an encouraging family member at the right time can help us do what we should do, but in the moment, we don't have it. You know, sometimes you raise children and you raise them to do what's right. And over and over again, they don't want to do what's right, but you make them do what's right. And then someday you're in that place where you're not sure you have what it takes to do what's right. And they walk in and put their finger in your face and say, Mother, Dad, Grandpa, Grandma, you taught us better than this. Now you need to get up and do better than this. You need an encouraging word around you. And uh, I want to make sure that I'm part of that encouraging word for you. The third promise that he made was, he said, I will present to God a tenth of everything he gave me. This will refer to as a tithe or a tenth. Tithing goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Abel brought his first fruits to the Lord. And it continues right through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, long before there was Moses and the law. And then it is introduced and formalized in the law. And then it carries over into the New Testament. And it's the principle, the practice of people giving God one-tenth of everything that he blesses them with. We call it the increase. Thank God for all the tithers in this house. 
I thank God that my grandfather was a tither, my father was a tither, my grandsons are tithers, because we believe that that puts us in the plan of God, puts us right where God can bless us, and we've seen that blessing in our life. I want to encourage you to be a tither. That was, that was, um, that was Jacob's promise. He said, I'm going to give God one-tenth. Financial support, whether it's one-tenth or a general gift, is our willing response to God's goodness in our life. God doesn't demand one single penny from you or me. He doesn't threaten us if we don't pay tithes. He doesn't hang us over hell or threaten to tear up the covenant of our salvation if we don't give money. But what He does, He's so good to us that He makes us want to give. That's why God said He loves a cheerful giver and He doesn't want any, any regretful gifts he doesn't want gifts that are given out of pressure and, 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 and demand. He wants gifts that are given out of a heart that's full of love, the heart that he has changed, a heart that he has blessed, a heart that loves him. And, and you know, he's God. That's the, that's, that's the kind of gifts he wants, hearts, gifts that come from the heart. Jesus taught this, wherever your treasure is, meaning your financial assets, there the desires of your heart will be also. And so if you look at where a person spends their time and their money, you find out what their value system is. You find out what their real heart's desire is. And so when you put your, your money in the kingdom of God, you put your money in the local church, it's simply saying that I believe in what's going on. I believe in the kingdom of God. I believe in what's happening there. And I willingly bring my tithe and my offerings to the house of God, not grudgingly, but willingly. It's a joy to give went to the house of God. But it's based on this is a house of God. It isn't just a social organization. It isn't a vision of man, but it's a vision of God. Can you say amen? amen. So there are three unchanging commitments in salvation. Three unchanging commitments that have always been and will always be. Number one, it's a commitment to personal relationship with God. That's the first part, and it drives the other. Secondly, is a commitment to a regular time and place of worship. You can't just get saved and never go back. But you get saved and you go back because you want more of what you experienced initially. And you want more of God and more of what He has for you in His life. So the second commitment is a regular time of place and worship. The third commitment is, of course, financial support for the kingdom of God. So if you boil it all down and say, what is our commitment at the point of our salvation? It's real simple. It's a personal relationship with God. It's a commitment to a regular time and place of worship. And thirdly, it's a commitment to financial support. That's our part of the bargain. That's our commitment that we make to God at the point of our salvation. I wonder if there's anyone here today that needs to renew their vows to God, needs to renew their commitment to God. Um, sometimes we make a decision to be Christians and to live His kind of a life for Him, and life happens and decisions are made and other people do things, and before you know it, we tend to drift away from the commitment that we made. There might be someone here today that needs to renew their vows. It's not so much about getting saved again as it is making a new commitment to do your part and do what you promised to in the beginning. It's a course correction, a course correction. Uh, 
a course correction. You know, if you're going to shoot a rocket or a missile or maybe just a, a long-range deer rifle, the slightest, the slightest movement at the start point creates a huge miss at the point of impact because the longer you're just one half degree off on your angle, the longer it travels, the further away you get. And that's what happens when we get our, when our lives just get a little bit off, just a little bit. The longer we stay with that angle just a little bit off, the further away we get. It's a week, it's a month, it's a year, two years and three years and five years go by like that and it's like, God, I can't, I can't believe it. I spoke to a woman last Sunday and she talked to me how that she had made that just one degree error, just one degree off. And it took her 10 years to get back to where she wanted to be because she stayed just a little bit off for too long. And she said, I gave God a, a, a promise that I'm gonna give him back the 10 years that I did not walk with him. I'm giving him back those 10 years and I'm gonna work and I'm gonna serve and I'm gonna give him that best and make up for the 10 years that I was just a little off. So what I'm saying is, if you feel like maybe your angle's a little off, you gotta make a course correction. I don't know a lot about military weaponry, but I read a lot of things and, and find it very interesting how that when you have a guided missile or some sort of a, a guided uh, piece of weaponry, that that piece of weaponry does not just st start at one point and travel in an exact straight line to the target and then explode. But throughout the, the, the flight of that piece of weaponry, there is constant correcting of the course, constant correcting. And so the pattern, instead of being straight, is a little bit zigzag because that instrument is constantly making those fine-tuned course corrections to make sure that at the exact moment, it's gonna hit where it was designed to hit. I see life in that. I'm constantly making little corrections, little corrections, because if I don't make those little corrections pretty soon, I'm out here somewhere and I've gotta make big corrections. And so it's a zigzag course. It's a zigzag course. Little corrections, little corrections, little corrections. And that's what keeps us going. When you get in your vehicle and you drive home today, you remember the zigzag pattern I'm talking about. You don't just set your hand on that steering wheel and drive straight down the road in between, but it's constantly making little corrections. And your mind goes into automatic and you're making those corrections and you're staying in the middle of your lane and you don't even realize it, but you're making constant corrections to make sure you stay where you wanna stay. And again, it's a good picture of how we live for God. You make small corrections so you don't have to someday make big ones. So it might be someone here today that needs to make, to renew their vow and make that correction. It may be someone else that you know that needs a real Bethel experience in their lives. And uh, we want to pray with you and ask God to use you to convince and persuade and compel them to come to the house of God this month. And um, it might be someone else that God's putting on your heart. And uh, He can give you the right time, the right place, the opening. Just give you the right words.
and it all comes together. I guess in my lifetime, I've become hypersensitive to the right place at the right time and waiting for the door to open, and then I walk through. You know, sometimes I've missed good opportunities to compel people waiting for the door to open. Sometimes you got to turn the knob and open the door. you got to make it happen. You've got to initiate it. You've got to bring it up. And so I want to encourage you to get someone on your heart, be ready for anyone else that God might bring into your life, and compel them to come and have their own personal Bethel experience. Can you say amen? You can close your Bibles now. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come forward. These are people that know how to pray and touch God in your behalf. All you have to do is walk down to the front, ask any of them you choose to pray with you. You don't have to tell us details or, um, or personal things at all. Just kind of give us a generality. God knows all the details and He knows exactly what to do about it. And we want to pray with you. Um, and we want you to encounter God in this altar and have an experience with Him that really does make a difference. And so if you're here today and maybe you're one of those people that may need to make a course correction, uh, maybe there's someone you want to pray with in this altar and ask God to push them over the line and get them into the house of God so they can have a Bethel experience. Others may be battling sicknesses or finances or relationship issues. (coughs) Excuse me, whatever it might be. Um, We want to pray with you about that. This is not a specific altar invitation. It's general, meaning whatever you need from God, we want to invite you forward. We want to pray with you today. Father, I thank you for the nearness that we feel, for the privilege we have to stand in your presence in your house. I believe, Lord, that your spirit is already at work. Finish the work you have begun in this altar. Reach out and squeeze the hearts of people that need to come and that you want to touch. Give them the courage and the boldness to step up and step out and to ask for prayer. Let your irresistible love and your awesome grace be released this morning in your house in Jesus' name.